by way of introduction, uh, hi, I'm Todd. <laughs> and uh, I've gone to seminary. I'm a, I have a, hold a PhD in New Testament. Um, I've taught at seminaries a couple places, and now I'm working as the editor for a theology and culture website. Um, so I've done this before, but whether it's good or not is a different question. <laughs> so uh, with that, let me pray. Uh, uh, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So our text for this morning is one of the parables. I chose it uh, because I, uh, lots of reasons, one of which is the theme of, of it uh, kind of resonated with the idea of having to preach at the last minute. And then the other is that I, uh, I, I've done a lot of study on parables, so it's kind of my wheelhouse. Um, so this parable suggests that the kingdom or the action of God today in this world does not come by means of calculation or control, but always comes by means of a miracle of God's surprising work in our lives and in the world. The kingdom of God is said to be like a farmer who casts seed on the ground, but it is in a striking turn of, of events. Uh, the farmer goes AWOL. He goes to sleep and goes about his other business while the seed mysteriously sprouts forth fruit without any other further cultivation or intervention on the part of the farmer. Now, one of the things with parables that you sort of need to recognize is that oftentimes the, what's being described is not realistic, and it's specifically intentionally not realistic. This happens uh, quite, a, quite a bit, and scholars get all kinds of, like, oh, this isn't realistic. How could Jesus say this? Maybe he said something different. No, in some senses, the, the hyper hyperbole here is the point. Now, I don't know what experience you have with seeds or farming. What Jesus describes is not how a good farmer should behave. Seeds need help if they are to grow. You've got to till the ground. You've got to water it if the rain is, is gone. Maybe put up scarecrows to scare the birds away, etc., etc. It takes work. And in fact, one of the uh, parallel par uh, examples of a similar parable in, uh, comes in the Gospel of Thomas, which specifically notes that the ground has to be worked. Now, Jesus here does not say the ground has to be worked for good reason. He's trying to make a contrast here. Uh, one time, uh, I was... My, my wife is the gardener of the two of us. Um, and one time we tried to plant tomatoes in England. And we planted the seeds, the sprouts came forth, it was uh, wonderful. In fact, it, it kept going and going and going, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we, the novice gardeners that we are, thought, yes! We're looking for, like, salsa in England is terrible, right? So we were expecting to have all these tomatoes to make salsa. But what ended up happening, I don't know if if it's the weather or whatever, no fruit came whatsoever. It had grown so big that it, there was no energy, resources, whatever, left to produce tomatoes. All we had was just the, the, just the plant. It was a terrible disappointment, I must say. Um, but that's, uh, you know, the frost came and the, and the plant died. 
Plants take work. Uh, we're better at killing plants often than we are keeping them alive. So he, what Jesus describes here is as if he's expecting children to grow up to be well-adjusted, successful adults without any actual parenting, right? Like, babies can feed themselves, apparently, by way of analogy. Instead, Jesus entirely bypasses all conventional farming practices to suggest that the seed of the kingdom of God produces fruit by itself. The word here, uh, the earth produces by itself, is actually automatically in Greek. Uh, by the way, that's the only reference to Greek you'll get in this sermon. <laughs> I, I have to limit myself to one, and that's it. That's yours. So if you're taking notes, the word is automatically. The farmer does next to nothing. He doesn't even understand how seed grows. Perhaps this farmer got in the wrong business. The farmer instead passively sleeps and waits for the day of the harvest to come, paradoxically, without any intervention. Now, Jesus tells a lot of parables using farming imagery. One of the things I always thought was odd about this is that the vocation that is ascribed to Jesus by way of his father is that of a carpenter, right? But we don't find any carpenter one. We find one uh, carpenter uh, parables in the entirety of Jesus' ministry. There's something about farming, which he believes to be far more significant, a far better analogy for how the kingdom is to come. Because if he had chosen about carpentry or uh, however you want to, no, not, no Greek, sorry, <laughs> however you want to uh, understand that word, uh, whether it's a builder of some sort or, or a carpenter, he, uh, he doesn't make any reference to it. If he had, it would have privileged some degree of preparation and work and effort. Things only get built in carpentry if you do it, right? The wood isn't, gonna, uh, isn't going to lathe itself. You're not going to throw a bunch of wood together and w- go to sleep, and the next day a boat appears, right? It takes a lot of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears to do carpentry. But Jesus never does references carpentry. It's all about farming. And I think the reason is, has everything to do with this sense of, of growth happening by itself or independent of our actions. Jesus here suggests that the kingdom of God is not a matter of control, nor can it be engineered, but it will surely come nonetheless. Perhaps most hyperbolically, the parable suggests that the kingdom of God does not come by our own tireless exertions. It comes by itself, apart from the activity of the farmer, despite, if not through, the farmer's inactivity. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a kind of terribly impractical and reckless business plan. Um, Perhaps I'm a little bit too much of a type A, um, ENT, J personality. Um, I'd reference my Enneagram, but I haven't dared to try. Um, But the idea of doing anything without first Googling it sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, Whenever I'm traveling in the city, this always uh, rears its head because 
I always need to know exactly which subway stops I'm getting off and which subway stops I'm getting on. And so I look it up, I have it on my phone as I'm traveling, even though I know exactly what it should, should happen. I'm constantly and irritatingly asking whoever I'm with uh, for updates. Is it this stop? Is it the next stop? Is it the N, the R? Is it the 4? Is it the L train? What's wrong with taking the bus now? Everything, by the way. In the face of inevitable uncertain future, we grasp at whatever we can to ensure that whatever comes next in our life is something we can control, or at least influence. Uh, smartphone in hand, you plan, you prepare, you think ahead, you set life goals, you make lists, you read the right how-to books, always trying to mitigate the imminent disaster that waits at every junction. If life is a journey, you're going to be the driver grasping the steering wheel with white knuckles. This is, in many ways, the story of Marlin, that wonderful Pixar film. Marlin, uh, I've watched this, I watched the movie recently, I have small kids. I've watched it more than one time. Marlin is about control. Marlin wants to mitigate disaster. He has this little fish that he doesn't have much confidence in, who is his son. And he's constantly trying to ensure that everyone is safe. There's no risk involved in his life. There's no uncertainty. And all of this culminates, spoilers, at the very end of the film, when he ends up in the, in the belly of a whale. And his, his uh, dory, who he's with, another fish, uh, is trying to tell him just to let go, and the fish will blow us out. Everything will be fine. Just let go, Marlin. And Marlin, of course, does. Now, the, uh, it's lots of fun kind of Jonah imagery going on there. Right? He goes into the belly of the, bale, of the whale, and the whale blows him out, and he's a born-again new uh, fish, so to speak. But Marlin's story is very much our own story. We plan ahead. We create buffers and safeguards. We imagine the worst-case scenarios and work backwards from there. Have you ever met someone who's trying to play all the angles? Um, if they're a lawyer, they're probably doing this. I once found myself in a terrible work situation and spent day and night not sleeping, but imagining every which way it could go. It was kind of an all-consuming thing, almost like I was caught up in some terrible Shakespearean play. Because all of my worrying and planning and plotting and imagining the scenarios actually probably made things worse in the end. The uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, most people try to live by some self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in, the, in their, his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. And what usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. Nevertheless, he decides to exert himself more. Uh, I was once at a, uh, oh gosh, decades ago, at a, uh, church planting conference. At, a time, at the time of my life, I thought I might be a church planter. It's not uh, true. 
And I went to this big church planting conference in Orlando. It helped that it was in Orlando. And it was full of all different kinds of speakers um, who gave all kinds of wonderful wisdom about having, uh, having the right plan, having the right mis- mission statement, having the right vision statement, having ex- like dotting your I's and crossing your T's in a, in a, in a very kind of orderly fashion. It was um, terrible, by the way. <laughs> And then at the very end of the conference, a man who you might know by the name of Tim Keller stood up. And he said, I'm going to give you 17 points on revival. And as soon as he said that, my heart sank. Because <laughs> I knew t- sort of Tim Keller's work and thought, this is going to be great. Um, and as soon as he said 17, I thought, oh no. This is going to be just like every other speaker who's going to tell me all of the ways in which I need to do uh, correctly if I'm ever going to get this right. And he says, uh, what Tim Keller said this, there are 17 points to church revival, but there are three you are in control of. (laughs) You have to preach the gospel, you have to pray, and you have to encourage creativity. And that's it. Everything else, the rest of his was all kind of descriptive. This is what happens when revival happens, but you can't control it. All we're, the imagery he used actually was of um, building an altar and waiting for the fire from heaven to come down to ignite it. Now, far be it from me, uh, if you don't believe me, believe Tim, if I may be so bold as to use his first name, uh, but... But if I, far be it from me to suggest that you, what you do does not have a direct bearing on what happens in your life. But what I do have to ask is, how's it going? Can you engineer your future? Because unlike the farmer of the parable and with Marlin, so often we find ourselves trying to control, often with less than successful outcomes. However much we plan, Things go awry. While self-help books fill whole quadrants of bookstores, the fact that business is booming is a verdict unto itself. As one 20th century theologian has said, our chief characteristic, our, our characteristic of estrangement from God consists in this, that we think we have the reins of our, own, of, of our life in our own hands, that we think we can carve out our way in life through our own initiative and planning, and by our own integrity and achievement, can securely lay the foundations of our worth. What is it in your life that you're holding on to with white knuckles on the steering wheel? What is it that keeps you up at night? One of my favorite headlines from the satirical website, The Onion, uh, comes, says this, anxiety resolved by thinking about it really hard. <laughs> they had this to say, potentially offering hope to millions of Americans struggling with psychological and emotional problems. A study published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine found that test subjects were, were capable of fully resolving their anxiety by thinking about it very intensely. (laughs) 
Whether someone is feeling overwhelmed at the office or constantly pondering whether their relationship might be falling apart, it appears that incessantly agonizing over this source of stress is all that's required to eliminate your feelings of tension about this subject altogether and leave you feeling untroubled and fully satisfied with your life. Now, instead, Jesus suggests that our plans and our very activity is not a predicate of the kingdom of God. There's no reason why this farmer should have been successful, yet the harvest comes anyway. It's as if being, been, it's, it's as, it's, it, has, uh, if it has been suggested somewhat tritely, I might say, that God's ways are not our ways. This parable says something a little bit more profound, namely that God's activity and my future are not determined by however much I work or plan or worry or even know. The chain of causation lies beyond my senses. Despite or even against my tendency to imagine that it's all up to me, God nevertheless breaks through. The salvation which we long to see is wholly and completely God's act, whether in the surprising kindness of a stranger the grace we might receive in communion, the cool wind on a hot day, or in the true forgiveness we receive from God alone. A few years back, the essayist Leslie Jameson was doing an interview, kind of promoting her book at the time. And she said one of the most interesting things I sort of haven't stopped thinking about since she said it. She said, sometimes the solution has nothing to do with the problem. I think surprise is an important part of grace. You thought you wanted cookies, but you really needed seltzer. Grace isn't the thing you planned, it's what you get instead, which is maybe connected to the ways you and I want to uncouple it from a sense of contingency or deserving it. It's not a product of narrative or moral cause and effect. It catches you off guard. Surprise is sometimes my working definition of God or grace. Instead of an action-consequence paradigm, Jesus suggests that surprise is the primary paradigm for his ministry, that God and Jesus is unilaterally giving us, is working for the benefit of all humanity in a way that contravenes our expectations and notions of causation. We might think that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to... Thank you. <laughs> that your past uh, somehow dictates your future. Jesus says otherwise. Our past does not determine the future. Time is not a bounded set of causation, an endless stream of events from birth to death. Instead, there's something more going on. As much as we might want to and try to and even perhaps existentially have to create a narrative of our life, a story of who we are and where we came from and where we're going, what Jesus says is whatever narrative we construct is inherently going to be restricted because it does not allow for nor does it conceive of something happening from the outside which we did not expect in the first place. And that is prim principally, primarily, exactly what Jesus does. 
The light shined into the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The parable is, in many ways, asking if we are willing, for Jesus' sake, to wait with him for God to do what he is sure to do. If we are willing to wait with a carefree attitude, which is becoming to the children of God, without any spiritual maneuvering or misguided efforts. For us to wait on God, who has promised to act. What the parable encourages us to to consider is a pure and unconditional openness to the future. Not because of some sense that we just can't do it, but because on the basis of an unshakable certainty that God will act, that we serve a living God who is not remote, who is not distant, who does not care, but is actively and intricately involved in the, in the, uh, in the destination of the world, in, the, in what's going on on the day-to-day of our life. Jesus' parable encourages us to wonder at what is to come around the bend because it will be better than we might have imagined. It encourages us to wait with passivity, non-reactivity, carefree, childlike attitude toward life, knowing that we have a God whose kingdom makes all things new. Uh, Why don't we uh, pray? Amen. Pray. (laughs) Dear God, We thank you that you are a God of surprise, a God who has more for us than we might imagine, a God who cares and is not distant, a God who interrupts the causation of life, a God who provides forgiveness to break the chains. God, we rely and ask on on you that you, you will act in our lives. And with that, we hope with expectation. All this we ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.